Welcome to episode 25 of the Lisa Fisher Said Podcast. I'm Lisa Fisher, a longtime broadcaster and journalist in Arkansas who's been in front of a microphone or a camera since the 1980s. I think of myself as the go-to for all things Little Rock in Arkansas, but I also like learning about other people and what they have to offer. That's why I started a podcast. My guest for this episode is Sarah Catherine Gutierrez of Aptus Financial. Sarah Catherine tells you how to live within your means, and that includes paying yourself first. You'll get to meet her right after this. This episode of the Lisa Fisher Said Podcast is brought to you by Aptus Financial. Aptus Financial is a flat fee financial advice firm in Little Rock, Arkansas, and these nice people can help anybody on the planet. You can go to their website now, aptusfinancial.com. You can schedule a consultation. You know, this day and age, you can make that appointment and you can meet with them in a Zoom call. If you are in Arkansas and you'd like to meet with them in person, talk to them about that. But let me tell you what they do. They're the people who can help you start saving for retirement now. Now, if you're in your 20s, you're going, that lady on the podcast is crazy. No, Sarah Catherine Gutierrez and her team, they love helping people in their 20s start saving. The name of her book is But First Save 10. You'll hear more about that during the episode. And also people in their 30s, but the more challenging ones, 40s, 50s, ah, let's talk about 60s. They can help you with that as well. No mountain is too tall for them to scale. They will help you with your finances, and they are a delightful bunch. For more information, go to their website, aptusfinancial.com. She won most talkative in high school, and she has been running her mouth ever since. Welcome to the Lisa Fisher Said Podcast with your host, Lisa Fisher. Okay, it's one of the most important health systems in our life. It's not just our physical, it's not just our mental, but it's our financial health, right, Sarah Catherine? That's and it's right. something, I mean, if we wanna start schooling people, so if we wanna do Financial Health 101, where does Sarah Catherine start it? Where do we all start? It is such a simple answer. We start with paying ourselves first. Like, think about your paycheck. Like, it, it pays your taxes, you pay your taxes first. It pays your health insurance. It pays maybe your parking. And then after you get your paycheck, your money goes out to pay your mortgage, pays your car, it pays your gym membership. And that is how at the end of the day, someone can wake up and realize, oh my God, I have paid everybody else with my hard earned money, except for myself. So I believe that it starts with pay yourself first, when you save first, and then everything else follows from there. So paying yourself first, is it done metaphorically? Do you have an envelope system? Do you, do you keep a kitty at home, a till, and you go, hey, I, I got my paycheck, I gotta pay myself first. H how do you do it? Yeah, so I believe it has to start with the like deep-seated belief, right? Because it's real hard to live below our means. Then once you're like, yes, I deserve to pay myself first, then you seek to go do it. So the best place for people to pay themselves first is into their retirement plans at work. It is automated. You get to average into the market. You get an immediate tax deduction or the Roth option. Uh, it is, you get a, a simple menu of investments, super easy to do. Some people though have a lot of debt 
And maybe their best pay yourself first is to put a little bit into the retirement plan, but to put a lot into paying off credit card debt, paying off student loans. And then once those things are paid off, then they transfer that to saving for retirement. So you're teaching us to live below our means, one. but I know, it's so un-American, Lisa. It is, because, you know, we'll talk to our grandparents and they would talk about paying on time, and I'm putting it in air quotes, and that meant paying something out. Well, now that nomenclature's not even in our vocabulary because... It was so foreign to them. Now it's accepted, Sarah Catherine. You, you could go into any big box store and, and there's an option. You, gosh, when you go to eBay, it says this $50 thing you bought, you could pay it out in five months. I'm like, it's $50. After pay. <laughs> yeah. This, you're right. Yeah. That I mean, on these like small purchases. Yeah. So Lisa, here's the funniest part about that. So let's take a vacation. So... It has been studied when you get the most joy out of a vacation. Now, would you guess that the most joy out of a vacation would be before, during, or after the vacation? I would think during. You're enjoying the vacation. Funny enough, it's before. Why? The anticipation. It's more thrilling. It actually fires our brain more than being in the vacation. Yet, we put the vacation on a credit card to then pay for said vacation when we're getting the least amount of enjoyment from said vacation after it. That makes no sense. Pay, so you're telling me that people are putting their vacations, that that's an option. See, I'm married to somebody who, who doesn't think that way. No matter if we have a dollar or a hundred dollars, <laughs> we've never really lived differently. And this isn't about me, but I'm saying he has so brainwashed me that I didn't know, because we just wouldn't go. If we, that's, I guess our philosophy is if we don't have the money, we're not buying it, eating it, going on vacation, wearing it. I know I that's, mean, that's, that's just, crazy. I know it's that's crazy. crazy. And that's what, that's the world I want people to tiptoe into because studies also show that you have more fun on vacation when you save ahead for it, which makes sense because if you're on a vacation that's on debt, then you know that during the vacation, you know, you're going to be paying for it afterwards. So I, I love getting people to think about pay yourself first. You know, there's two different ways to do this. And I want people to at least do the first, which is pay, at least save your retirement. Think of it like taxes. You have to do it. It's like not even, I don't want you, you don't even have to feel good doing it. You just automatically do it. But the second form of pay yourself first is what you do on a cash management system, which is you save ahead for all of those big ticket items. And if the money is there, you take the trip. If the money is there, you buy the clothes. And so I've got seven savings accounts. And I used to live in the old world of have the fun, pay for it later. And like, and I'm a spender. Like I openly tell people I am a spender. I love spending every last dollar in my account. It feels very satisfying. I have a long list of things I want to buy. I want to buy a Tesla right now. I would settle for a Roomba. The Tesla (laughs) with the wings. I want yes. that so badly. But you'll settle with a, a Roomba. Roomba. I'll take I'll take a Roomba. But the point is, like, I have this constant list of things. I'm like, I need it now. And there's things that are just I can't afford them. Like they're just right out of reach. Like I could reach for them. But anyway, that's that's how that's how people operate. And, that's, and I've lived that life and and still very much have those temptations. But I would just urge anyone to just 
try out for six months, like what you just described, like only buy it, only take the trip if you've got the money and like notice how you feel. I mean, it feels good, right? Well, it's freeing. And In so what way? And the fact that no one has a noose around my neck going, get over here. You've got something to take care of. You know, I own it. So for us, and again, this isn't about me, but I just learned the hard way. We did do the envelope system. We've been married 33 years and we literally did the envelope system in 19. Like with physical cash into physical envelopes. In the 80s, we didn't live in, uh, we didn't use credit cards. And I mean, we wrote checks. We wrote a check every month to the electric company, APNL back in the 80s. So we actually had envelopes and we in there though, we had a, I remember our, our envelope for, I think we spent $60 a week going out to eat. That that was it. And so at the end of the month, you'd have the envelope and go, well, there's nothing in here. And my husband's not the person who wants to rob Peter to pay Paul, which I was highly touting during those early days. He said, that's all that was in there. So we're not going over to the healthcare one, the one for our medical expenses. We're done for the month. So it one time um, he had told me, because he, we still keep a budget. I still, this is crazy. We, I write down everything we've spent that I've spent for the week. He's not asking me what I spent. He's not micromanaging me. He just wants to know where we are in the month right. because yeah. everything is done electronically or through a card. And um, one time I remember he came in and I said, I was going out with my friend Kirsten. We we're going to run downtown and get a bite at so-and-so. And he said, it was July. He goes, well, you've already spent to November for some things. So good luck. <laughs> So um, I had to have November come really quickly. But th- the point in all that is just its limits. And, and that's what I'm saying. For someone like me who likes to live in excess, I like those limits because then I know if I am spending, I'm doing it lawfully. And I'm not saying with the government. I'm saying with my conscience that I can do that. And I feel comfortable. I feel good about it. You know, I love two comments you made that people describe when they adopt a cash cash flow management system. And that's of any kind, right? Whether it's, there are some electronic enveloping systems, the system I teach, you just use your own bank accounts, but you described the feeling of independence and of freedom. And a lot of people associate budgets with feeling restricted, deprived. Can you tell me, do you feel restricted, deprived, living not, within your means. Not at all. That's what I'm saying. I, but in the beginning, it was a different language for me because I had been accustomed to, you know, having my parents pay for things, then I was on my own. So I was on my own making money and I did okay. You know, I, I've always spent a lot of plates and had a lot of jobs at once. Just I'm a hustler. And so I always knew, well, I can buy that because I've got the money. But then once my mentality was, well, you've got the money, but do you have the money then if the dishwasher goes out? Do you have money then if you get a flat tire? I was like, well, I don't know. I just knew I'd money that week to go and buy the clothes I wanted to buy and the stereo system I wanted. So once we started doing the envelope system and understanding this is for clothing, this is for this project, then you know what? It was kind of exciting. You'd think in March, gosh, in a few months, I'll get to buy those 
Manolo Blanc shoes, those Jimmy Choo shoes, you know, because I'm saying you can justify your purchases. So it's not, again, it is freedom. It's not restrictive. I think that's right. And, uh, you know, it's it's interesting for people who are chronic savers, like, or people, I should say, who are scared to spend, and that's why they save. An enveloping system, which is, you know, or like our the system I teach with, with bank accounts, it allows people to spend. It gives them permission to spend. Because if you if you have a plan that has you saving enough for retirement, that has you saving into separate envelopes or separate bank accounts for home repairs, for your tires going out, for, you know, clothing, gifts, people get, you know, hammered at Christmas time, right? All those different uh, big ticket items, if you have a separate envelope for them and you don't rob Peter to pay Paul, then you basically have your bills and then you spend you spend whatever's left in your account. Like, in fact, in my system, uh, what we do is, is we do the budgeting on the front end. So we like we, we map it all out. You know, you pay yourself first into retirement, pay yourself first into the savings accounts, pay your bills and you spend the rest. And so we, once we we get that spend the rest number, which covers groceries, fuel, dining out, all those things. What we do is is we create we get it down to a weekly amount. And so most people take this fourth step in my system, which is crazy. You, you deposit it into a separate checking account every Monday. Oh. And you and your spouse debit card that sucker down to zero. Because what I find is, you know, you're writing stuff down every week. That's a lot of work. And, and it's great. I always say, if like you've got a system that works, don't, you know, don't try to fix it, right? But a lot of people who don't have systems don't like the idea of the of just how much work they think it's going to be. So this is a hack where it doesn't actually matter what you spend on the rest. You just spend it to zero. And what's interesting is I just had a post that people like are not believing, but I have kept the, our spending data since before I was married. And my husband are about to celebrate 10 years together. Well, we spend right now, so we started that system, we're newlyweds, and we spend right now $120 a week less than we spent as a married couple. With, with no, no children. Kids. And no now kids. we have three kids and a dog. And here's how that happened. When you get your money on a weekly basis, so it turns out our brains cannot really budget well on a monthly basis, but we can budget really well on a weekly basis. So you train your brain to play these games with the money. So it's like, man, you know, if I crockpot a little bit more, I can squeeze out a little bit more money. And then I get to keep whatever the earnings are. Like I get to keep whatever is left over because I'm the one that manages us, like whether we crockpot or not. Like I'm the food person and food is really the biggest expense in our discretionary and for a lot of people. So over time, we were realizing we just kept having money left over, left over, left over. And so we would, as we were, you know, my husband are entrepreneurs. And so we would tighten things up a little to have a little bit more money for his business or my business or whatever. And never realizing, it, you, you, we never felt like we were spending less money. But we now have $6,000 a year 
less, like more to, to work with. And you might think, well, gosh, why wouldn't you just bump it back up? Right. And the, the reality is, is we don't know the difference. And so why not have $6,000 extra to put into our vacation? We take lots of big trips. Like we love, we love going big on vacations. And so when I see that extra 6,000, it's not like it goes into oblivion. It goes somewhere. Now, Lisa, I, I got to find a way to get to this Tesla. And I have not figured out how I can crockpot my way to the Tesla just yet. You're but on your way. I just, <laughs> but, but it's amazing how you can adopt these budgeting systems. And in many, many times, it's not always the case, not know the difference, not feel the difference like you think you will. Well, it's preparing for a windfall. So um, savers like my husband don't look at a windfall as something to spend. He he absorbs it as it's just part of our padding. Whereas people like me who are gifted spenders, I'm really gifted. <laughs> I, I, I spend it before it's, you know, if I know it's coming. And that's why he'll say, you don't need to know it's coming. <laughs> You're better not to know. <laughs> because you'll want to know what can we get with that. So people like you, then what do you do with a windfall? See, that's brilliant. So I would spend it like, and I might beat you on like, I might have a hundred ways to spend it more than you. One of the most important lessons I've learned when it comes to those windfalls is the fungibility of money that a lot of people will, will, will separate money depending on how it's made or how it's received as if like gifted money is any different from money that they earn from a paycheck. And so gifted money, because it didn't reflect work, can be blown. I have always operated under that principle. I think it's a fine principle. I'm the same. But the sad thing is that the laws of numbers and physics don't lie. A dollar is the same whether it was a gift or whether it came from your pay. And I credit my husband being a natural saver and really arguing that point just like yours did. And, and by the way, that's not a gender thing. Like, like our husbands have happen to be the savers and many of the client couples we work with, you know, women are the savers. So, so I just want to make sure that, that people don't misunderstand our own experiences. But, um, but yes, I, um, I have learned through his perspective, the true fungibility of money and have now, uh, we have realized the benefits of it because for us, that extra money over time bought our ability to start our own businesses. And we in our thirties were able to leave nine to five jobs to work for ourselves. And there is no amount of money that I, we, either of us could be paid to go back to a life like that for us because we are passionate entrepreneurs. So yes, uh, I believe that windfalls should be, well, let me just go back. The reason that I started that exercise with you need to believe that you should pay yourself first. You know, if you have dreams in life, like I one day dream of starting my own business or I one day dream of taking a sabbatical Whatever that dream is, if you define it well enough, then you might have a shot at redirecting those windfalls like a tax refund, like any amount, any just money that just appears out of nowhere, a bonus. You might actually have a shot 
at redirecting that money and not just spending it. So you don't have to spend everything you get. That's fascinating. I mean, you can, and it's so oh, gratifying in the moment, isn't I it? I know, it is. Well, then let's talk about some tax planning then throughout the year. Are you, do you recommend the most deductions so that the government gives you as much money as you can, even if you have to pay them in April? Or are you the opposite where you get the windfall from the government? So um, I do try to encourage people to do it precisely right, to try. Okay. And the reason is, is that owing is never a good situation, just behaviorally. I mean, I realize that what you're doing is you're getting like interest-free money or whatever, but, but the reality is you're kind of, most people are shooting themselves in the foot because behaviorally they're probably not saving along the way and then they can find themselves owing taxes. Having the tax refund means that you have the danger of what you and I just described. So a lot of people will say, I plan to save my refund. And then they find out what the refund is. They're going to receive it two months later. Well, that refund has been spent six different ways by the time it arrives. So what I believe is the best way to adopt a pay yourself first system where you save for retirement, you save into those savings accounts, is when you can have the same amount of saving come out of your paycheck, deposit every single month into your retirement account. The same amount of money go out of your paycheck, deposit into your home repair account, your clothing account, all these along the way, and it makes your life more predictable and easier to manage. And I think it maximizes. So think about like your retirement account. If by breaking even on taxes, you can put the 10% that I recommend into retirement. So I think everybody should save at least 10% into retirement starting in their 20s. Well, maybe you can achieve that by managing your tax as well. And now what's going on is every single paycheck is being deposited into a market. And so, for instance, think about the March paychecks that went in this year. You know, those, those, that one deposit got you know, over a 50% return because it went in as the market was lowest. So we call this averaging in. So I think that's you're, you're really taking advantage of perfectly averaging into the market when you save and invest in a steadier way. So that would be my um, kind of boring answer, but I think it's a good one. Percentage wise, do people come to you and say, okay, Sarah Catherine, how much, what's your percentage on how much we should put into housing, how much into clothing, how much into medical expenses? Do you have numbers for that? Yes, I do. Um, so people starting out in their 20s need to save 10% for retirement. People in their 20s should rent. Now, that is not categorical, but if you find yourself using the words starter home, you are probably about to start losing money. I would buy a house when you're ready to stay in there for a while oh. because there are a lot of costs associated with owning a home. And don't forget, it's not just repair costs. When you own something versus renting it, you are far, far more tempted to, to invest a lot more money in remodeling. And what I think that most people in their 20s need to do is to keep their eye on the prize. Keep your eye on getting to the right retirement savings rate get to an emergency fund that would cover you for six months. It might take you five years to build that. Focus on that 
and then start saving for a down payment on a home. Make sure you can put 20% down. So you're probably kicking that home decision down until your, you know, earliest late 20s, but most likely early 30s. People in their 30s, if they haven't been saving enough, ought to be saving between 12 and 15%. So if you've been under saving or not saving in your 20s, you're in your 30s, you need to get to 12 to 15% savings rate. Now, to be clear, this cannot include the company match because your, yeah, so here's why. Your ability to retire is a ratio of how much you have in savings and what it takes for you to live. So when you are saving, you are not just depositing money into an account, you're reducing your lifestyle because you're spending less money. That's what saving is. It's that reduced lifestyle that you're now carrying into retirement. So that ratio gets easier. You don't have to have as, as high of a top number as you would otherwise. That's why we don't the, think of the match as an accelerator on your money, but not part of your savings rate. Okay. Well, let, oh, let me just ask you one thing. So in, in this um, financial economy that we're in, and we always talk about, we do consider social security as something that we right. will have someday. But I do too. Okay. How about kids in their 20s and 30s? Do you think there will be Social Security yes, for them? I in, do. Okay. 30 or 40 years? Okay. We do. And, um, you know, we don't overly count on it, just like we don't overly count on the company a, match a high or, rate of return. Yeah. Right. Anything. Right. And, and also remember, uh, you're, I think I just read the st st a statistic that over the course of a lifetime of this generation of workers, from the millennial generation, they change jobs 12 times on average. So if you think about to be fully vested in a lot of retirement accounts takes six years. And so even if you were getting a match, you might not even be vested in that match. You might be leaving it behind when you change jobs. That's why you really have to like save the percentage you need to save to be able to retire. Consider the match to, just to be extra. So now, we're, look, we're looking at life the way our grandparents lived, that they went to work for the railroad. Granddad went to work for the railroad or the mill, the paper mill. He was there for 45 years. He got the ring with the diamond in amazing. it. Amazing. But then he walked away. With a pension. Rich. Yeah, with a pension. So, I mean, that's, that's the type that we would like for people to look at. But now people flip-flop, they move, they buy, they sell, Lisa. and they may not have it then at 65. What if the company goes out of business? Right. Okay, Lisa, but you brought up the most important point. Companies and, and, and associations, all the used to have pensions and those were unsustainable, but we were conditioned. My grandparents had a pension. We had, we have the entire baby boomer population conditioned that you work somewhere, you're taken care of. If you work your whole life, you're taken care of. What should have happened is when pensions went away, there should have been billboards everywhere. <laughs> hey, folks, guess right. what? Right. Like, You're screwed. it's not that way anymore. <laughs> right. Like, but they went away quietly because com companies didn't like it. Like, no one liked this change to a defined contribution plan. And so it went away so quietly. And now the poor baby boomers are the first one left holding the bag. And that's why, you know, half of them are just retiring into Social Security alone. And I would like anybody to come and talk to me about anything worse. OK, when you talk to someone whose whose greatest hope is that they won't have a long lifespan, 
Lisa, that is not, it is horrifying. And I have had those conversations and that is why I feel so passionate. A lot of people ask like, why do you talk about such a boring topic like retirement all the time? It's because you realize that there is very little you could put up against this retirement tragedy and tell me that it's worse because you're not talking about someone who's going to deal with something for one year. You're talking about the rest of their life. Okay. Like 20, 30 years, like when we're living longer and the reality is our brains are not though. So our brains cannot, we can't count on our brain to go past 65. The average age of retirement of these baby boomers was 62 last year. Do you think that's, do you think that's a bunch of 62 year olds retiring early because they had plenty of money and they're like, oh, I'm going to walk. No, it's health. It's ageism in the workplace. It is the, the best scenario for people who don't have enough money is to be able to work the rest of their lives. And that is just not possible. So anyway, uh, that is exactly what happened. And that's why, like when I say to a 30 year old, get to 12 to 15 percent. And, you know, there's always this like, gosh, retirement's 30 years away. Well, guess what? If you start saving 12 to 15 percent right now, that means your 40 year old self is not going to have to start saving 20 to 25 percent. Yikes, now, Sarah Catherine. Lisa, I'm a buzzkill. And then you, you get to really your No, I bear bad news. And I do it because I have seen people rip the Band-Aid and get to these savings rates and they sleep at night. Like when people live paycheck to paycheck, you know what you described earlier? Like you had plenty of money to live and you could save ahead for things like clothes, like little savings goals. But if your tire went out, you wouldn't know where the money came from. That is the way most people live. The Fed study in 2016 found if, that if, if that that 48% of Americans couldn't get their hands on $400 in an emergency. Okay, so I have seen people make this decision and I'll tell you the one that I see made the most that is incredible is someone who turns 50 who has no savings has two choices. One, they can live with this steady state of fear and anxiety. It follows you everywhere. Or you can say, I'm 15 years away from retirement. I can smell it. So let's do this. And they can save 30%. And that is a lot. That's like, that's like downsize car, Go to one car, one Uber household. That's a, you know, downsize house, you know, by more than a half. Like that's a, that's a big step, but you know that that train's coming. It's going to be far more severe at 65. So what a 50 year old has that, that a 25 year old doesn't have is the actual imagination that they might want to retire one day. And so that's why we see people make great bold decisions in their 50s. Now, I do want to say, you know, you asked for uh, some other uh, uh, ratios or rules of thumb, and I'll tell you there's another one that I feel very passionate about. I believe home ownership is one of the main reasons that people cannot save for retirement. It has a crowding out effect on people's incomes. And I love a nice home. I, uh, I, I'm not saying people can't buy them. And a lot of people end up buying nicer homes with cash savings. But for anyone who is financing a home, the best rule of thumb I have 
is to never buy a house that is more than two times your gross income. You will be approved and encouraged to buy a house that is four times your income. Wow. And then people settle into one that is three times their income, thinking that they are doing so much better than they were recommended. But Lisa, we run numbers. We have hundreds of clients and we run detailed models on all of them every year. And so we know that like you start bumping beyond two times income, like you either stop dining out, you stop going on vacations, which people are not willing to to people are not willing to live in their house and be miserable. So what ends up happening is they're like, oh, well, I'll temporarily bring down my retirement. But that's a death sentence to the retirement. They never bring it back up because it never gets better. Does that make sense? Yes, it makes total that sense. Is why, that is why people can't retire. They're buying houses too big. And Lisa, I'll tell you, people think it's the cars that people are buying that's like the big indulgence. Mm-mm. It is the home remodeling. That is the latest craze. It is the home remodeling. And we saw it in COVID. It was like on steroids. Because I people mean, are mortgaging those things. They're yeah, having they're a second mortgage. On debt. That's debt. right. They might be taking out a home equity line of credit or, or even if they're cash flowing it, you know, they might be bumping down or bringing down their savings rate so they can cash flow it. But um, but even before COVID, I, I started noticing that as kind of the new expense. Like, think about it. There's like a style now every 10 years for what color your kitchen should be. I mean, like, that would have been talk about like our grandparents. Like, do you have a stove? Does it work? Right? Like, it functions. Well, they as- finally, probably after ten years, took the plastic off the lampshades and the sofa because they <laughs> wanted it to last longer. But before then, that divan. My grandmother called it a divan. Her sofa, and it was oh, this, that's awesome. It was the same fabric that was um, like on an ugly piece of luggage I had twenty years later. So yeah, because they didn't. My grandparents. I, my grandmother lived in a pink house in South Arkansas, and it's still known as the Pink House because she didn't know after the 40s. It was really ugly, but it's kind of endearing now. Okay, Is so, it that Pepto-Bismol pink? No, it was a little softer, a little okay. softer than that. It wasn't quite as nauseating, so it was something. It was memorable. Um, let's talk about the number of the retirement number of 65. Are we basing that on um, what the government says we should retire or... The fact that insurance agents, you know, who, who's picking that number? Because look, the closer I get to any number, let's say I'm over 40, I mean, just hypothetically, um, the older I get, the younger all that sounds because I, I have the energy I want to keep going. Can we? Can we? Yes. Can we plan to keep going? Oh, absolutely. I mean, I plan to keep on going. So that's why I don't connect with the word retirement. That's not, I I don't, I don't emotionally connect with it. The word I connect with or the phrase is work optional. So if something were to happen at 65, you know that you can go on Medicare. And I think that is the magic wand. If you've ever, if you know someone who is in their early 60s, go ask her to price health insurance if she were to buy it on her own. And you realize that your best bet is working for a company that has health insurance until you hit 65 and then retiring when you can get Medicare. It is extremely expensive. Can you work and still get Medicare? Yes. 
do you have do you have to take is it what's the number 62 we hear about is that an option for Medicare? that's social security oh, oh, oh so oh, oh. you can start taking social security at 62 so I don't typically recommend it. Now, I don't like to make general general financial planning. Um, I don't like to make general sweeping statements. But I do find a lot of people think, oh, I could start getting some extra money right now. So even though they're working, it's like, wow, I'll just get extra money. But um, if I remember this correctly, I think that your Social Security um, benefit grows by about 7% a year which is a fine rate of return on any investment. And so people are really going to be better off delaying Social Security as long as possible. And then again, like some people come back with the argument, well, you know, if I die younger, then the federal government wins in that scenario because they would have paid out less. But Lisa, like, I'm not worried about people dying early. I am worried about people living long lives. We have to defend against living a long life. And that's why we have to make our money stretch as much as possible. So that age 62 social security is typically not the best, the best decision for most normal, like most average people. Maybe 67, that's full retirement age now for this new generation of people who are about to start retiring on social security. That's going to be the what's called the full base. It's the full base benefit, right? Like it's where you're 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 getting your 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 base social security, but you can still keep delaying that to seventy, and your your benefit is going to grow every single year, and so a lot of people will be better off working to seventy if they can, and then taking social security at seventy. The problem that a lot of people have where they have enough for retirement and it's and it's just a math problem should i take should i take it at 62 or 67 like there are there are tons of wonderful people out there who can help people calculate that i'm not worried i'm not worried about that decision i am worried about people who don't have enough money saved for retirement i hope that makes sense Makes total sense. Um, age 70, is then is there an age that the government then finally says, come get your crap? Yeah, come get your crap. <laughs> I, know. I packed it on the front porch. Come get it. Right. Okay. That is so funny. I'm, I, I'm, I'll use that with attribution. Please. You don't have to. I'll, I'll forget I've said it in five <laughs> minutes. Um, but there, so age 70, you do finally need to start uh, collecting what is yours. That's right. And then the other thing I consider too is um, our vessels are maybe living longer, but I do worry about uh, mental health. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And um, I, I take care, you know, I take care of this aunt or I, I people help me. She will be 97 in July. She doesn't even take an aspirin, Sarah Catherine. Oh my gosh. This is my biological mother's sister. So I was raised by my cousins after her sister, my biological mother died. But that's my DNA. <laughs> but she weighs 70 something. And we went to see her yesterday and couldn't find her a minute. And I always think, oh, I can't find her. She's not in her bed. This may be it. Girl, she was back in the other room, comes in. She doesn't have a walker. She has that little th- three prong kind of stick. Yeah, yeah. That helps her. And she said, well, honey, I was in the restroom. Where, where were you? And I went, we are amazing. So, and I do see somebody who's taking good care. I mean, the bottom line, the moral of that story is she's taking really good care of herself. She walked three miles a day till she was about 92, motor on lawn wow. <laughs> at 91. 
<laughs> Isn't that amazing? Lisa, but- that's true. Like we have to think about retirement, not just in dollar terms, yeah. but in preserving our, taking care of our bodies as much as we can. That is a decades long effort. And, uh- you know, and, and some people, man, I mean, my, you know, my mom had cancer, like some things you just cannot sure, prevent absolutely. and they're just terrible. Absolutely. But I do believe that, you know, it is our responsibility to do what we can to nourish our bodies so our brains can last as long as possible to exercise, to do all these things that science are saying like will work. I believe that is like, you know, hand in hand with a good financial plan. Oh, absolutely. And, and, you know, in this healthcare model, I mean, in fact, I'm devoting my life to it. I, sidebar, and I may edit this out, but I just signed up today to become uh, a well, it's a health coach for wow. functional medicine for people because I don't believe in a pill for an ill. I think in the same way you think you can cure your financial woes on your own, I think a lot of your health problems can be cured by not taking all the prescription medicines. And we know that pharma, big pharma gets richer every day. They, our healthcare model is based on us being sick, right? Right, Yeah, that, that's how people get paid. That's right. And so they, they don't really want us to get healthy because maybe we don't get to buy the big homes we want and all that. So that that's really a sidebar. Well, but- down on this tangent, just if we can go there for just a second. Okay, so you know, a lot of people have gotten the COVID blues. Right. Like and, and, and I have I, I've never felt this before. It's it's hard. And I was listening to a Brene Brown podcast and they were talking about these cold plunges and that it used to be before there was medication for depression and the blues that you were prescribed a cold shower. And so I tried, coincidentally, I tried it this morning. And I mean, I was screaming. I mean, it was awful. Like, it's terrible if you've never tried it before. But I have to say, like, maybe it's a little bit of a, uh, I lost the word, um, the, the, the pill, the placebo effect. But man, it, I think you're right. Like, I think that there are some things we can do that, uh, you know, that can bypass, you know, at times that can bypass just, you know, a good old pill. Well, we go back to our grandparents. They were not obese, right? Now they started smoking because they thought it would help their mind or whatever. So they may, they may have picked up smoking. And so that generation, there was more lung cancer. Yeah. We know that. So yeah. let's eradicate cigarettes from our, my personal life. You do what you want to do. I don't care if I'm saying, let's say I eradicate cigarettes and many substances from my life. If we live like our grandparents did, there were no boxed meals. There was processed. There was nothing processed. So everything, it was just, it was a different mentality. Now, do I want to live back in the fifties where you had a little box air conditioner for your, in your window? And then, um, you know, there wasn't good fake eyelashes. No, (laughs) I want to live in 2021 where I get to have the thermostat where I want it. This is our big marital fight is the thermostat. And then I get to wear strip lashes that are fabulous. And these are water-based. You dip them in water. <laughs> They're new ones from Ardell. <laughs> I need to know where you get them. I don't know how to order. I mean, I find things and grab them. So, But that's my point. I do like 
the progress we've made. I'm not saying to go back, but there there are some things about simpler times that helped us live below our means and physically we didn't have to tame any type of monster with uh, health issues. But Well, Lisa, like tying that into money, um, so remember that 6000 that we cut out of our budget, that was food. We were literally eating $6,000 extra in food every year. Now, that's from eating out. So our norm was to eat out at least three or four dinners a week and then every single lunch. And, you know, my, and my husband was working at a plant in Jacksonville and there's not a lot out there. I mean, you've got Popeye's, like you've got <laughs> fast food around you. And, and even me eating at better places, you're still making poor choices. So interestingly, our migration to changing our norms, we had to change them. We had to change them from we eat in every meal every meal. We bring our lunch to work. We had to change those norms. And then from that, our habit changed. I couldn't imagine defaulting to going out to eat. We go out to eat on a very special night where we get a babysitter and we go out to eat. Now, a function of this was having children. Nobody wants to go out to eat with children. I see people go out to eat with children. I'm like, how is that better? How is that? How is that wonderful. That's stressful. So it, it helped that we had three children in rapid succession that made going out to eat miserable. But it is fascinating that not only over that time have we been able to save the equivalent of $6,000 a year, we have gotten far healthier. Oh, because totally. we From your make own our kitchen. own meals. You know, we're not eating the processed foods. And yeah, the food, and it tastes better when you cook at home. I mean, I know this. And that's probably why I've always cooked at home. We just didn't have the budget to go out. And I, I cooked something yesterday that my husband looked at me. He goes, why would we even go to a restaurant when yours is better? I was like, dang it. I should have never learned. I should have never been a good cook. Should have been a lousy cook. We would have gone out more. But no. He well, what did you, I'm curious. What was the meal? It was so simple. I do make a really good, I might have put this in the show notes, uh, tomato, basil, coconut curry soup. <gasps> so that was the soup. And so it was really good. And then my mouth's watering, but I use sourdough bread from a bakery and I have really good bacon. And then you can even cure that or put sugar coat that bacon if you want, lettuce, tomato, and avocado with Duke's mayonnaise and toasted the, the bread perfectly. And he really said, he goes, this is better than any restaurants, soup and sandwich kind of thing. So it was just oh, something he said yesterday. I promise to put that into the show I know, show in notes. my show notes. I have to put that right here. If you're looking at percentages now of the spending and the saving, you save 10% every month in retirement. You save 10, another 10% in savings. For uh, So I just say 10% into retirement. Those other savings accounts that we've talked about, like the home repair, yes. that has a, a savings goal. So I recommend that you save uh, 1% to 2% of the value of your home into a savings account every year. That's a good rule of thumb because, you know, everything's going to break at one time. It's, a, it's not like it spaces itself out. 
it really is something that just, so, I mean. So yeah, it's hard to say like on those, like you're talking about like the equivalent of your cash envelopes. There's no rule of thumb. Like I know people who spend 50 a month on clothing and people who spend a thousand a month on clothing. It's really, it's really dependent on what people value and how much money they have. So it really, it, it's not a, it's very difficult to put a percentage on the rest of your spending, if that makes sense. In 1980s, we used envelopes. Now, do you tell people to open separate checking accounts? You kind of mentioned that earlier. Can you separate go to your bank account. and say, I want five different savings account accounts and they're fine with that, the bank? Oh yeah. Um, so in fact, you know, they pay you via interest. And so uh, not only are they fine with it, what I do every month is I set up auto transfers. So uh, my paycheck hits and my husband's, well, we call it paychecks is our, you know, our owner, uh, our, our owner pay hits our checking account. And then immediately we have that money just disappear into so many different little places and it just auto transfers. So then when you go to, uh, so we have high deductible healthcare plan and most people who are, um, you know, most people look at an HSA is how they, you know, spend their, how they, how they, pay for medical expenses. How they budget. Yeah, you budget your medical expenses a lot of times based on how much you've contributed and your company may match, right? In the yeah, HSA? Okay. So my husband and I do something a little different and I, we recommend this to a lot of folks, which is to use your HSA as a retirement account. It has a triple tax advantage. You pay no taxes when you put the money in. And as long as you spend them on healthcare, you pay no taxes on the other end. It's the only dollars other than babysitting and lawn mowing in your teens that you will never pay taxes on. You invest that money in stocks and bonds and you will have yourself a little healthcare nest egg and health is the largest expense you'll have in retirement. So my husband and I do not spend our HSA. We max it out every year and then we don't touch it. So, so, and so it, it can roll over or you can use that mm -hmm. money in other ways? Yeah. People confuse it with an FSA and it's totally different. Right. FSA is use it or lose it. HSA, you can carry it over. And there's some great companies. If you want me to recommend like Fidelity, HSAs are great. If your company, so if your company only has a cash HSA, you can't invest your money in stocks and bonds, then you can look at HSA Bank, which uses TD Ameritrade for its uh, trading. Um, and then Fidelity. Now they're going to make you keep $2,000 in a money market or a cash-like instrument. And then you can invest whatever is over that. So uh, you're using the HSA because it's tax-free then? That, that oh, was yeah. your, okay. Yeah, we love that tax deduction. Huh. So we're never we never plan to pay taxes on that money. Even when you take it out? No. There's no taxes. Even on our earnings. So we're putting it we've been putting it in the stock market. We have more than doubled our HSA since we since we started doing this several years ago. So it's an, a nest egg that gets bigger and bigger. Yeah. And it's your HSA. And so, you know, we've had an amazing bull market in the past several years. And so since we started doing this, and it's more than doubled and you know, we will not have to pay capital gains tax or income taxes when we go to take that money out. 
I had to write people that don't down. know yeah. this. It's yeah. so fantastic, but it's they're so new that that the information on these are are not. It's not great. People still think of it as use it or lose it, and fund them that way. So so my point of that is that. I um, have a savings account connected to the, my bank, which is for health purposes. So I automatically fund it. And then, you know, when we have to pay out of pocket for health expenses, I just write a check for it or I just pay right out of that account. Um, right, you know, not my formal health savings account. I use my actual bank savings account. Oh, see, I was afraid your kid broke his leg and you're going, you're fine. <laughs> I will say be this, good. Lisa, when you have a high deductible health care plan, which was like our $7,000, you have health spending years and then you have non-health spending years. And you got to get the whole family on that program. Okay. Like everyone has to agree that no one is going to break anything this year. No one's going to the dermatologist. <laughs> yeah. No one's getting a colonoscopy. That's all going to happen next year. So you would space it out, right? Like my daughter broke her pinky in November on our non-healthcare spending year. Like it is just classic. Like she cannot get with the program. I had a son um, <laughs> that I was, I mean, literally I needed him to be born by the end of the calendar year <laughs> because I needed the child tax deduction yeah, and true. we had a $10,000 deductible. Oh, so I had paid all of my health expenses up until the end of the year. That kid didn't come until January the 8th. I was begging my OB, please, please. He owes me. you. He owes he you. He owes me big. Yeah. yeah. For the rest of his life. $10,000 yeah. to yeah. birth that sucker because the, the, um, the deduct, you know, the deductible restart. Yeah. You shake your head sometimes when you see these athletes or entertainers who go broke and they've made millions and millions, and millions of dollars. Does the Sarah Catherine... Just shake her head and go. No, I'm not surprised at all. And it makes me super sad. And let me just say, we answer the question of why can't I save with if I only made more money? And let me just tell you, Lisa, we have a really good view on that. So 98% of our clients are young physicians. And we we see them go from making $60,000 a year to paycheck to paycheck on 400. Isn't that crazy? So I speak to medical residencies across the country. I spoke to University of Michigan a couple of weeks ago, speaking to Kaiser Permanente in Northern California in a few weeks. And the deal is, is that if people can start saving on 60000 in their residency, then they will probably be able to save on 400000 in when they're attending level or out of training. And this is the... This is the, the most interesting thing is I feel so much compassion for people. So Lisa, I do this exercise with these residents and it always starts with lots of laughter, okay? So I give uh, eight different scenarios or I give one scenario of a doctor and then each group, so we divide up into eight groups, makes one decision. One group buys the house, one group uh, picks how long they're gonna take to pay off student loans. So every group does one thing. And they all come back really proud of themselves because of the decisions that they've made. And they all seem modest, like a new Prius, right? Like, like they haven't chosen anything crazy. Like buying a house is three times income, not crazy. And every single time I've done this scenario, they have run out of money in a significant way. And by the end of it, everyone is sitting there shell-shocked because we haven't made any crazy decisions. 
It's just the sum total of them together made them go over budget. And I'm telling you, Lisa, like not crazy. So I feel a lot of compassion for them because we are not taught to budget. We are not taught to put our expected expenses into a spreadsheet and it makes, we feel like money is limitless. And so that combined with the like inability to pay ourselves first or create this budget is how people get into such significant um, positions like that. And, you know, I do our financial planning reviews when we get people, or, sorry, I review our financial plans that our planners do. And, and uh, you know, I will see a couple that's doing this for the first time in their 50s and you see, oh my gosh, like they're still paycheck to paycheck or they still haven't paid off their student loans and they're making 800,000 a year. Like we see these numbers and feel so much compassion because we see the human side. Like we know them, we know they've been generous and we know that they've been raising kids. Like we just know that they didn't get the right advice before they made this kind of money. That's the thing is like when we're working with people who are residents about to get out, it's like a math problem, but you wait to do that financial plan three years later and it's an emotional problem. Like it is wild how much easier it is to do it from the beginning than to try to reverse a lifestyle. If there's anything our schools could be teaching high school students, would it be financial planning The for, yes. for, the, for, any, for any age or uh, income group? save. Um, I love the work of junior achievement and economics, Arkansas. There's just not enough. Like we, like, like those should be like the dominant forces of our education and not just one class, but like, not just one, like one hour session, but like, like over and over and over. Um, and I think, you know, we have these investing clubs in high school and, you know, they're teaching kids to do the very thing we just saw them do with GameStop. Oh, they're teaching them to buy an individual stock. Mm. What if we instead had clubs where we taught kids to save and then the investing thing, just buy the market, like buy a passive fund that buys the whole thing. But most importantly, let's teach you how to pay yourself first. Let's teach you how to make a budget. Yes, I think that's exactly where we should put, be putting all of our focus in education. Tell me about your book that you've written. So the book is called, But First Save 10. It is narrowly written for young women getting out of college. And it is for the very reason we just discussed. It's uh, meant to be relatable and funny. And so we had a bunch of Gen Z readers that uh, made it language approved and, uh, and readable, hopefully. Um, but it's basically this, like do this math problem. You don't have to read another financial book. You don't have to obsess about your money. Just, just you, just knee jerk. When you start your first job, you save 10%. When you start for your first job, you save 10%. And so it goes through, I assume that you don't agree with me. So I walk the reader through like why we save 10%, you know, why, uh, why women are actually better investors than men. So don't be afraid of it. Yes. On every study, women outperform men on investing returns. Yep. That's awesome. It's because we are so scared of the market. We end up buying and holding. And that turns out to be the better strategy. Your Arkansas's money, honey, Sarah Catherine Gutierrez. And she's great at salsa dancing, too. Thank you so much. You are on the mark. And uh, someday you'll be so rich, so filthy rich. This is going to be so fun. 
Thanks for listening to the Lisa Fisher Said Podcast. Be sure to hit subscribe and download all the episodes. The Lisa Fisher Said Podcast is produced by the Clanton Boys at clantoncreative.com. For more information, go to the show notes and they can produce a podcast for you and make you podcast famous. Mm-hmm.